Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. My guest today is Margot Wallström. She remains the most popular Swedish political leader for over three decades. She is known for her work in protecting the environment, promoting women's rights and supporting the safe passage for Syrian asylum seekers to Sweden. Margot has held ministerial posts such as Minister for Consumers Affairs, Women and Youth, Culture, Social Affairs and Minister for Nordic Cooperation and Foreign Affairs. She was also the EU's Environment Commissioner and the EU Vice President from 1999 to 2010. Along her career, Margot has always innovated and worked hard to make changes. She was the first commissioner to launch a blog in 2004 to reach out to the public and she also succeeded to regulating use of chemical compounds and products within the EU bloc. Margot has embraced and fought for many worthy causes during her career, from the climate crisis to illegal logging in the Amazon rainforest and blood diamonds in the Republic of Congo. In June 2022, Margot was appointed as the chairwoman of the Olof Palmes International Center. The Palme Center is the Swedish labor movement's organization created to promote international development, cooperation, opinion formation, democracy, human rights and peace. Welcome, Margot. Thank you. You are a person with many years of experience in the political landscape in both Sweden but also globally. Today's global crisis, boring Ukraine, one third of Pakistan underwater, climate refugees, health crisis, human rights crisis, the gap between the rich and the poor, and with many societies lacking values of democracy. So how do you find the roadmap to restore our planet? How do we build resilience? Well, I often find that we live between hope and despair in a way. And and this, this world is now experiencing existential threats like climate, the climate crisis, and of course also the threat from nuclear weapons. And, and that has been sort of a renewed, become a renewed threat, uh, with, with not least with the war in, in Ukraine. Um, and uh, at the same time, we also have a deep crisis for democracy. More people now live in countries that go backwards from a democratic point of view than uh, living in countries uh, that really make progress. And of course, we are, we are also tackling deep inequalities. And actually, I think that um, inequality is incompatible with democracy, because if democracy does not deliver to people, they will start to look for other leaders and other solutions. So we are at the same time sort of hosting all of these existential threats, very serious threats. And uh, meanwhile, we know that the world is also just such an amazing, this planet is such an amazing place. And and, uh, we we are able of making innovations and and develop all kinds of techniques and, and what have you. We are better informed, we are better educated, uh, we can travel. We have um, so much to to preserve as as well, and we still enjoy 
nature and everything that nature can can give us. But we have to make peace with nature as well. You as a young politician find a way into politics. 25 year old, you were elected to the Swedish parliament. But going to political party doesn't seem to be the choice for young people of today. Why? Do you see any risk in this? What needs to change? What is your advice to the Greta Thunberg generation? Well, I, I think we, we ought to learn from Greta Thunberg instead because she she has chosen another path. She has decided that uh, sort of politicians, political leaders everywhere have to listen to uh, what the scientists say and and let's focus on, on the facts. And she is from the beginning disappointed in, in the lack of leadership when it comes to tackling the climate crisis. And and she's right, and and this is of course part of of the the mystery. Why is it that despite uh, these what is it now eight consecutive reports from the IPCC that that leaders have not uh, um, heed the the call from these uh, uh, these scientists? Why have we not been able to to act? And I think that th- there is such a, a disappointment in. In uh, in politics uh, and political leaders, so of course I I encourage also young people to find a way into political uh, political engagement, uh, but I also understand if they maybe want to start and practice by um, being a member of an, an NGO, uh, an environment uh, organization, or whatever, and do something very practical, not, not only sort of use, use words. Uh, and um, th- that, is, that is understandable. But uh, it is necessary with both, both a deep respect for, for what, uh, what science tells us about the, the seriousness of, of uh, climate change. But we, uh, we also need to, to take uh, political action to, to make the right uh, decisions. And I think that the pressure from civil society organizations and NGOs uh, uh, is very, very important. So mm-hmm. we need both. We need both civil society NGOs um, uh, and and citizens' uh, uh, engagement mm-hmm. as well as uh, poli- true political leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when uh, we ask, for example, psychologists, they say that the reason why, and behavioral scientists, they say that the reason why we we have not been able to to deal with climate change uh, uh, in in the best way is because we we have not been able to imagine climate change as an enemy that we are going to fight down. It has not taken shape as an enemy. We have thought of it as something that will happen further into the future, and it will. Um, affect somebody else somewhere else mm. and until now that is true <laughs> it is really it is sort of the the poorest countries who have been hit the hardest it is really not our neighbors here in in europe for example but now it has moved the effects have moved also into our sphere and our mm. daily our daily lives and we understand that we will also be affected so maybe this will now sort of shift and the understanding will be 
uh, a deeper one. But um, do, do you think that, but that maybe we should have called on the behavioral scientists earlier to understand mm. uh, what could have been done yeah. to engage uh, everybody and mm. also get the leaders to to act yeah. more swiftly. Do you think the political parties need to change in the way they work? Well, all political parties, all from, mm. from left to right, and, and all of them need to understand that this is, this is what will determine our lives on this, on this planet. And also, I think the sense of urgency has to be injected into everything we do. So this is why we cannot wait longer. We just we have to act now. And uh, we have to understand that it affects uh, all different poli policy areas as well, from transport to energy to farming to what have you, you know, cons consumption and production. Mm. Well, there must be also a relationship to what sort of political leaders we, we get in the future. If we see new young people coming into politics, uh, because we need to have politicians in, in position to take decisions. Yeah. And, and if, we, no, if not we have the young generation is not going into the political parties, then we have difficulty to find the leaders to do, to be there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, we have. Of course, we have to to recruit more more young people also to become political leaders and uh, and help us with uh, with all of this. I'm just saying that I can totally understand that uh, there is this sense of disappointment. Uh, and resentment that uh, that is demonstrated by uh, by many of Greta Thunberg's followers, and we just have to show them that we can take important steps and that they are needed and their engagement is is needed. Mm. So we have to take them seriously. Mm. Let us. Uh, and now we know more also about the link between climate change and the environment and security. Let us also take another part of politics. When we talk about change and look into today's politics on, on structural politics, it seems to be that parliaments and government's offices on all levels struggle with the role of governance and implementation of policies and actions. Is it something wrong with the structure of how governments and, and parliaments and, uh, act today? Uh, or is it a lack of leadership or something with our democracy that needs to change? I think it's a mix of all of those uh, elements because to me it's really about a matter of, of time perspective as well. And we have, um, we know that many of the the deep, very serious problems that we are that we have to deal with, they require long-term thinking. But our systems and structures, they are made for short-term uh, action. And I don't know if you remember, but uh, a number of years ago, there was a discussion about whether, uh, you know, the stock market, that there ought to be a little bit of a, a you know, a one-second uh, reflection time uh, before you, you take big decisions uh, that will affect the sort of the, the stock market. And now, of course, everything happens in a nanosecond. Big business and big uh, affairs also on the, on, the, on the stock market. And I think that this is, this is very problematic because we ought to think uh, generations, uh, about generations ahead and plan in such a way that we 
we invest in the future uh, as well. Um, but um, I don't think that our mandates or our organizations are made in, and, and the way we, we take decisions, it's not made to uh, answer to, to that. So uh, this is part of, of the problem. And I also think that the leaders have maybe put more in the hands of, uh, of officials rather than, than uh, sort of steering politically legalizing everything um, which i think also take away some accountability political accountability you are a person that have been an activist when it comes to communication and social media you were the first EU commissioner that started the blog and together with uh, Gro Holland Brundtland and Mary Robertson was early adapter in the 2009 road to Copenhagen and the COP meeting creating climate justice program and you were avatar. How do you see the media's role and <coughs> particularly the social media to drive change? We live in, in an era where social media Place an almost determining role uh, for for communication and, and, and information and communication. So uh, I, I even found those blogs uh, the other day when I went through some boxes from more than ten years ago. And um, <clears throat> I uh, I think we have to be present. We have to use, uh, of course, the best of information technology. But we also have to be aware that uh, we keep sort of all the hatred and the misinformation and uh, and and all of that, the sort of fact, uh, the questioning of facts. We have to keep that uh, also away from, from uh, those platforms as, as much as, as possible. We have to be there in the in the debate, and we have to be active uh, to make sure that it's not taken over by by all of these haters. Uh, yeah. I worry a lot about about yeah. that yeah, because seen, it can scare anybody away from the mm, debate. We have seen Elon Musk. We have said Trump. We have said Fox News. We have yeah. different types of. of uh, leaders that are using social media, but mm. it's also a question, also maybe for schools into yeah. social media and to train them to be critical citizens, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's uh, that's uh, that's very important. This, mm. as well as as um, teaching students yeah. to read and yeah. uh, and do all of those basic things and, and read books and and also think for themselves, mm. think independently, reflect and find your sort of. I call it your inner compass. You have to find your inner moral compass. And uh, I spent the summer reading everything I could about role models and heroes, people that we admire a lot. And I found that this is what they all have in common. They have a very strong feeling of what is right and wrong. And it's not that they are more courageous than anybody else, that they are braver than anybody else. No, no, they are also have fear, feel fear, but they have a strong knowledge of what is right and wrong and they are willing to act uh, upon that.
Let us go into the time in the European Commission and you struggle in the EU many years when you try to drive change and implementation of the EU chemical regulation with the proposal of REACH. What is your mm. most important memories and learning of the work with REACH? Well, first of all, I think my my most important experience and 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 lesson from from those years was that I had established sort of a, a an agenda, a list of priorities that I brought with me when I entered into that role, and I I came very well prepared, and I can still recall exactly the points on that agenda. And they had to do, of course, with the things that we are still working on. They had to do with climate change. They had to do with the issue of water. They had to do with chemicals. And they had to do with the link between health and the environment. And this was the one point where I I did not feel satisfied at, at all, because I think we were a bit too early to introduce that because also we did not have sort of the competence uh, in the European Union to to do legislation and so on. But it was also, thinking back, these were years, beginning of of, uh, 2000, when there was a willingness and a readiness to actually adopt environmental legislation. And if I recall correctly now, I think we presented more than 200 legislative proposals from the commission in in my field you know under the environment uh, uh, portfolio so that was uh, it was amazing we presented so much of proper uh, sort of commission proposals to uh, to the parliament and to the council and of course the chemicals legislation was uh, one of the more difficult but we also negotiated the Kyoto protocol for example in in those days so i had it negotiation uh, delegation on the Kyoto Protocol. But um, but the chemicals uh, legislation, of course, had to do with it. We had to shift the burden of proof. Uh, it, it, it should not be for uh, sort of governments and, uh, and uh, government authorities to prove that something is, is dangerous. It's really for the producers to, to prove that it is not dangerous. Also, we had to test uh, much more of, of the millions and millions of tons of chemicals that are man-made and produced also in, in Europe or imported. And the lobbying was absolutely brutal. I mean, you know, they, they re- I think they used me as a kind of, you know, the voodoo doll and to, to, <laughs> to put n- needles in, in, in me. Uh, but uh, uh, they tried everything to say that it would destroy European chemicals industry, that we would lose jobs, that it would be so expensive that we could never... Uh, survive and so on if it was introduced. But now it's part of um, trade deals. They have to fulfill the countries that we trade with from European Union. They have to have uh, sort of the, the reach standards when it comes to chemicals. I'm not saying that it is the perfect uh, system at, at all. It has to be now renewed and we have to set even stricter uh, standards uh, and continue to, to develop reach. But I, I knew that if we got that in place, it would be impossible to 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 do away with it. You know, you could only strengthen it. You could only sort of, if you have a solid structure, then you can build on that and you can use it. The debate about this changed 
the moment that I uh, made the blood test, you know, I, I had doctors coming to me from the UK and they said that uh, an adult person will have hundreds of, of man-made chemicals in their blood chemicals that were not in our grandparents' uh, uh, blood. And I was thinking, could, could that really be right? You know, and, and I, I knew immediately that I want, wanted to check my own blood for, the, for chemicals. And it took some time, but after a while I, I did that. And, uh, <clears throat> and they found, well, you only find what you look for. You have to decide what is it that we should sort of measure. And, and, and they even found DDT in my blood, which had been banned for for decades and still in my blood. So I think we found, what was it, 23 different chemicals. And, and from that moment, people understood that this is something that affects all of us. It's not sort of only a legal, technical sort of science thing, but it's something that, that affects all of us as, as citizens. And also, not only that, but that we transfer it for example, through breast milk, by, by breastfeeding our children, we, we give it to them as well. So that really made a, a huge difference in the European uh, debate at the time. And everybody became interested in, in changing and putting reach in place. The interest around uh, the Amazon rainforest uh, has also been on your agenda about illegal logging uh, was on your priority as a commissioner of environment. What was the biggest hurdles for you to make the changes that was necessary to succeed? And uh, when we look at uh, today's President Lula is back in power in Brazil after years mm. of deforestation and destruction with President Bolsonaro. But in the time of Lola, the destruction of the rainforest was also ongoing. And the human rights for yeah. the indigenous people was also on, was also on the agenda. Do you think uh, that President Lula will drive a necessary chain for the Amazon rainforest and its indigenous people? And uh, I know also that you were visiting the Amazon in the time uh, and have some experience and stories from that time. Tell us more. Well, I, th I think we should admit, to both of us, that we actually were there at the same time. Uh, and um, uh, already many years ago. But um, um, I think for the new president of Brazil, it's uh, about moving from words to deeds. Let's see what, what he's capable of, of doing. And I think whatever happens, he is probably a better candidate than, than Bolsonaro, uh, because that was disastrous, of course. And uh, we already see a lot of this, uh, these things happening um, with a, a loss of biodiversity that, that is so crucial and that is so amazing also in, in Brazil and in, in the Amazons. So I, I, I'm hopeful, but uh, I think we can only uh, hope for and, and wish that, uh, that this will uh, be also implemented by, uh, by uh, Lula, the new president. We realized when we were there, we saw and, and heard of uh, these stories with the illegal logging. As soon as darkness fell, the big trucks started to move into the rainforest. And of course, one of these huge trees can 
can give so much money that uh, that this is uh, that this is uh, profitable and uh, they are willing to risk a lot to to, to do this uh, uh, felling of, of trees uh, and on the other hand the the loss of all the both beauty and and richness of the rainforest this it's almost not it's not possible to describe or find words for it because it's it's just so so amazing and we saw some of that as as well this is going on and we also met with some of the um, so some of the oldest inhabitants in the in the rainforest uh, we met the some of the the tribes, or I don't know what is the word, right word in, in in English, but that was also fascinating and uh, and also sad because uh, they are also constantly under threat and I think feeling feeling hunted uh, and and very much under under pressure. Mm. So this is something to keep an eye on, and I hope that the rest of the world will also be able to keep. Uh, expectations and pressure up on the new, the new president mm-hmm. um, and the, the political leaders of Brazil mm-hmm. that we don't want to see this destroyed and it means something to the whole world. You brought some of the the thinking into the European decision making also when it comes to illegal logging. Uh, what was uh, the decision that time? If I remember correctly, it was very much of making sure that we have certification uh, certificates that can ensure that we uh, do not uh, buy stuff produced from from things uh, taken out of of the Amazons, uh, but also to regulate the the protection of, of biodiversity. And this is still, I mean. Too little has happened here over the years, and we have we have such an enormous, huge loss of biodiversity. And uh, this is we have to understand that uh, this comes at at a cost for for all of us, and how dependent we are on on making sure that we we have uh, a rich biodiversity. Everything from bees to these enormous trees in the in the Amazons, we are all dependent on. On, on it. Um, so I, I'm hoping that's the next uh, conference of the parties uh, that has to do with biodiversity. And I think the Amazons is an example of exactly what, what we can find, the medical knowledge, the medi- medicines that exist uh, um, thanks to, to the rainforest. The flowers and animals and, and everything uh, is just uh, just amazing. Somebody said, called it, we live with an ecological grief that that uh, we must be sad over losing so much of, for example, animals. Uh, and uh, they, are, they are extinct. And we can do a lot. We can fly to the moon, but we cannot uh, make a rhino or one of these rare flowers. Mm. When they are gone, they are gone forever. Another part of the world that have been struggling with human rights and illegal actions we find in Africa. Issues like the blood diamonds in the Republic of Congo. And this was in the time when you were appointed as a United Nations Special Representative of Sexual Violence in Conflict. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about this work and how was it respond mm. from the UN mm. member states? Well, this was something that I would say also changed changed my my life and changed myself because uh, it left me with a, a heavier heart, but also maybe paradoxically with more hope for the future because I met with so many of the survivors and a majority of them women who said that we are not only victims, we are people who want to be respected, to enjoy our human rights, and also we are agents of change in our villages and in our countries and in the world. And uh, I was the first special representative and it really had to do with making sure that we we uh, could um, start to to end uh, impunity for these kinds of, of crimes because uh, that is also the paradox that it is um, through history it has been the the victims and survivors who have uh, felt the burden of blame for for these kind of crimes uh, and so that was very important and we managed to get in place new uh, UN security council resolutions that uh, that made the sort of name and shame list blacklisting of, of actors who use uh, sexual violence as a weapon or as a tactic in war uh, also to introduce it in in sanctions uh, and of course to make sure that we do more to prevent this from from happening and gave a voice to to all of those uh, uh, survivors and and victims. So that was a part of it. And of course, it took me to to uh, some of the uh, the most depressing places also in around the world. And unfortunately, uh, the DRC, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, is one place where we saw mass rapes and we saw this being used on a on a, on a scale that was. Uh, horrendous um, and uh, it, it you know money follow the money <laughs> and you will also see who are the actors that that make this uh, possible but we can we can still see it uh, unfortunately uh, even though we have both a better normative uh, framework in place we have I would say peacekeepers and other actors better trained and prepared for for dealing with it we have uh, some of these uh, sort of um, uh, uh, tools and, and legal instruments like sanctions, uh, etc. But uh, this is uh, um, such a, a historical uh, crime that is not so easy to to root out. Uh, but we we have to do it. And I keep asking everywhere, you know, where are the women? Why are they not around negotiating peace negotiation tables? Because if they are not there, this will not be identified as a war crime very often. It will not be dealt with in peace agreements and a follow-up with accountability. This is why it's important that women are around the table. To, to be able to prevent it and to end impunity, we have to make sure that women's voices are, are being heard. Uh, was, uh, but was I think it, also mm, we can use... It was sorry. something that you... I think I remember you talk about uh, other IT tools for the women to report. Yeah. Uh, what was that? Yeah, I think, you know, today everybody has a, a smartphone. Everybody has a smartphone. For example, all the refugees also from Ukraine. So we ought to be able to equip everybody with sort of both 
emergency numbers, with the information, what to look out for, uh, to even trace them. You know, to, to, as soon as you, you pass a, a border, you should have a, a, a message about, you know, what can you expect when you pass this border, when you come into a new region or into a new country, and how can you get help, and, and what could you look out for, and to use it more, more proactively. So I, I think this, we still have some more to do with, with, with that. My final question for you will be connected to a new position that you took on board this year to be the president of the Olof Palme Center in Sweden. What are the focus issues and where in the world will we see you acting and drive change? Well, this is, uh, of course, a, a, a true pleasure and, and uh, such an honor to be able to serve as chair of the board of Olof Palmes International Center. And uh, this is uh, an organization that has existed for 30 years now and um, works through partner organizations in, in so many countries around the world and also back, backed up, uh, for example, uh, by uh, partnering with the trade unions, not least supported by big trade unions in, in Sweden. And uh, we had uh, a celebration just a, a few days ago. Um, and for example, we have uh, always been very active in South Africa. And Sweden has a particular bond and has always been helping South Africa. And they, uh, friends from South Africa, was there to tell us exactly what it has meant that uh, for them to, to start to take over, to be in the government and, and build sort of a whole new society in those days after apartheid was done very much thanks to support from, from Olof Palmes International Center and friends in in, in Sweden. And this is also part of what we're doing now. But we have projects, I mean, from Colombia to to Africa to Asia, all around the world. Uh, so this is um, just a, a fantastic way to continue my uh, international engagement. Oh, great. I would like to say thank you very much, Margot, to be in the Transformers podcast with stories about your important leadership role to drive change in our global world. Thank you very much for your engagement today. Thank you for friendship and partnership and for everything that you are doing also. Thank you. I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast. And you can expect about two programs a month, and each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable. So find out more. Visit my homepage, kaiembren.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>